0: Welcome to Market Scale's The Trust Revolution How Trust Unlocks the Future. Hosted by the CEO of White Fox Defense, a global leader in drone airspace security, here's technology entrepreneur, Luke Fox. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Market Scale podcast The Trust Revolution How Trust Unlocks the Future. I'm your host, Luke Fox. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're joined by Professor Juliet Kayam, who has spent the last two decades in both state and federal government managing complex policy initiatives and organizing government responses to major crises. As a professor at Harvard Kennedy School of Government, she's faculty chair of the Homeland Security and Security and Global Health Projects. She is former assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Currently, she's the CEO of Grip Mobility and is a Pulitzer Prize finalist national security analyst on CNN and Atlantic. And when Juliet isn't saving the world, she's out catching some waves as an avid surfer. Juliet, it's great to have you.
1: Thank you for having me, Luke.
0: So Juliet, diving into this topic of trust. Yeah. How has your journey been shaped and even morphed in what you know and think about trust?
1: So, I mean, it, it has changed over time. I mean, if you, you're asking me, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, about trust and, you know, my the way I think about it is it's all about risk reduction. How, as a mother, as a, you know, crisis management or homeland security expert, as a uh, someone who advises uh, you know, CEOs or governors or mayors on this, you know, that... trust is about being honest about risk and then trying to reduce it to the most practical uh, uh, means possible. And so that's how, uh, and that requires honesty and a little bit of hope. Those are the two words that I go by. I mean, honesty is just, what is happening in the world? What is happening in, in our community? Or if you have a business, what is happening in terms of the risk that your business faces or the risks that your business is trying to address? Uh, and ha- what are you doing to you know, reduce that risk and build trust? And you do that through Numbers, which is essentially just my shorthand for saying honesty and then providing a path forward providing some hope uh, And so it's been a rough year for everyone. And I think that we need to Begin to build trust back into both our public and private institutions
0: And so you talk then about this on this honesty. That's so yeah. critical to trust How do you there's a lot of people and even some of our leaders in federal government? who yeah. say that if you're honest, that's going to create panic no. And that's So what do you, what do you say to them? <laughs>
1: uh, if you're not honest, it creates uh, probably 400,000 dead by February. Uh, so that's a mythology about crisis and disaster management. People, people actually tend not to respond to the truth with panic. It's just not the way it works. We've seen this in airline disasters, fires. If people believe that there's competent instruction uh, to help people, they will abide by rules, but they need to have that confidence. The president, uh, in, in this case, you know, any government that tried to minimize the likely impact um, of the uh, of the pandemic of COVID nineteen uh, was was surely is surely responsible for the greater panic and the greater distrust that we have now. Uh, and the reason why is because the public is the crisis manager now, right? The public is the person that has to decide the risk calculation for their kids and school or the risk calculation for themselves and going to work or the, or their employees. Uh, And all you can do is be honest.
0: And in that honesty, there's some spectators who've said that once that, that trust is broken and somebody's downplayed the truth, that when you then turn and start to be honest, people will then magnify what you say And so they say you're kind of are stuck in this position. Are they stuck or is there something that you can do to actually build that trust back?
1: Uh, You can build trust back. I don't know if uh, if um, progressive, I guess I would say, you know, but trust is broken cumulatively as well. So in other Mm. words, if, if you think about Dr. Fauci. So originally he said no mass, but he's has had decades of trust. And also, decades of honesty, or, or months of honesty after, so that you can say, "Look, upon further reflection, I uh, um, I was wrong, or we pivoted, or the data just told us something to be." It allows for if you build trust, it allows for course corrections. Hmm. I think if you consistently lie, you are afforded no course corrections. So one of the interesting things about the the transition now between. President Trump and President-elect Biden, is President Trump really could go out. I mean, he's obviously making a big fuss and not a happy one about uh, about the Electoral College and, 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 and the lawsuits. But honestly. He could be doing a victory lap uh, mm-hmm. because he, because of the vaccine, because uh, it's being manufactured, because we have orders in, because it's going to be distributed. And I think that's something, you know, and, and he could have rebuilt that trust after many, many months of sort of denying the, the virus and its impact. Um, so that is, you know, that's how I think about it. I think if that's a long way of saying, this idea of the course correction, right? Cause as a CEO or as a leader, you know, a public leader or a CEO, you will make mistakes, but if you build trust in your institution, in your environment, you will be able uh, to course correct without people thinking either you're stupid or ill will, or you were hiding something. You certainly know, I certainly know as startup CEOs.
0: Absolutely. And it kind of goes to that, uh, that model of trust to the piggy bank model. Yeah. Uh, you you're investing over time and building that trust and while you can do certain things to uh to break the piggy bank you could you if you've invested those years in uh demonstrating good intentions. Right. That's exactly right. And so speaking of uh of being startup CEOs Yes. You've gone from the successful career in government, and you're still very involved on the crisis management side and helping support governments, but also you're helping to support other companies. And in fact, you yourself are the CEO of Grit Mobility, uh, which is a transportation security company, as I understand. Yes. One of the funny things is, is as we're doing research for this show, we went on your website and it shows in all caps... Trust the ride. Right now, I'm just wondering: What did you just do that just for me, or no. what, is, what is this? What is this about?
1: <laughs> I I believe in trust as well. That is a, a way. I I sort of joke that trust is the. Uh, startup California euphemism for safety and security, but we like to say trust because it's like fancier. Uh, (laughs) uh, So um, uh, no, I I do, uh, I guess I should say, I, I do advise a lot of companies, everything from retail to supply chain companies now on Thinking about distribution, thinking about crisis communications. I am also in all my spare time. I'm just joking, but uh, yeah. uh, primarily uh, also a CEO of a of a startup. I have a great uh, team, a great co-founder, a great COO, a great tech team, uh, and um, and so I, I'm given a lot of. Uh, Flexibility, especially during the pandemic. And they've really to save in, the
0: world on the side. Yeah. They really <laughs> rose into
1: the occasion. But you know, look, it's a, it's a company that provides, um, in ride, um, audio and video features, uh, through mobility apps and rideshare apps. Uh, and, uh, so trust is a, is sort of trust in the, in the ride experience. And we, uh, we like, er, like others. I mean, think about who we were. We were a startup. In the transportation space mm-hmm. in 2020, I mean, and, and female and a female CEO. So there's like, you know, the v- variety of well-known whammies in terms yeah. of raising money, in terms of, I'm a little bit older, so I haven't had that challenge, but I definitely see the numbers about female owned startups. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, we started my last trip mm-hmm. was, Uh, to sign a big deal or negotiations around a big deal. My last time on an airplane, because I haven't taken airplanes since, um, was March, I want to say 9th. Um, uh, And and I was in San, San Francisco uh, maybe it was a little bit earlier uh, that that deal, like all other deals, you know, got delayed. Some deals got canceled uh, and we were really struggling because there no one was moving. I'm in the transportation space and no one is moving. Right. Uh, and I had I think one of the benefits of being an older CEO, I'm, as I'm talking to you and you you're quite young. But one of the benefits of being an older C, uh, CEO uh, is a uh, time. uh uh you're you're more accepting of time i i don't mm. want to say i'm less ambitious or i'm less hungry it's you're just patient. i'm more patient uh mm. and so my goal was as i'm sure other during the pandemic other series was you know i had two goals one was no one off payroll to the extent practicable you know obviously mm. we 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 broke contracts with vendors and stuff but um and the other was You did we had to do. Yeah and the other was uh You know, ask me again tomorrow. I mean, in other words, if I could just survive day after day, uh, and then, uh, and then we, but at the end of the summer, we began to see people come back. We have a major, major, deal, the one uh, I can't go public with yet, but the one uh, that had start, you know, that should have been signed in March will now get signed hopefully in January. Uh, and we're sort of thriving in the sense of, of helping uh, mobility and rideshare share companies. Uh, and so it's exciting, but it was, you know, I'm, I know this is a business podcast. It was rough and, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, not happy. I mean, it just, it was, you know, I just would say to my husband, like, this is, this is the unfun part of the CEO. Like, I like the fancy parts and the closing of the deals and the fancy speeches and the, you know, and the, and the drinks. And, you know, that's the fun stuff and the hiring a great team and stuff. This is rough. And so I do think that, uh, exactly the patient being older and being slightly more patient, maybe also, you know, recognizing that there was a lot of misery out there and a startup failing is not a tragedy when you look at what's happening in the world. All of those, I think, were perspective setting in a good way as well.
0: That that makes a lot of sense, and so really, it sounds like you've been spending this year investing in the piggy bank with your team. Yeah, yeah. Just extend
1: the. I kept saying, uh, uh, extend the runway, extend the runway. That's all I'm asking. Like, just don't let me get off the cliff, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're you're drawing down money. You're not. It's harder to raise money. You're you're you you have no financial deals. I mean, the whole thing was was just uh band-aiding together uh to make the runway last until we could take off. And then we started to, for a variety of reasons that just worked in our favor, we started to in July and August and then have been uh testing and, and piloting some stuff so and you know globally. So you know and, and other parts of the world are more mobile than we are. I, I had a joke with my team and also we're you know you know this too. We're not I'm not I think I've seen my (laughs) co-founder twice since March. I mean, we're not, I mean, we're, we're, we're all apart. So I, we, I, by the end I used to, there was some text exchange going around and, uh, someone ended it with the, uh, my tech team is in Pakistan and he ended it with no worries. And (laughs) then I said, that is our company. That's the CEO motto. So every, every, uh, Every meeting ends with the two words "no worries" because what are you going to do?
0: That's exactly. And going back to your point, you can't worry, you can't panic, you have to focus on yeah, what's in front the, of you,
1: extending the runway, just tomorrow, numbers, give me till to tomorrow, the oh, yeah, give me, give me till tomorrow, numbers and hope, right?
0: I love it. And so, just to uh, double click down on this, uh, yeah, this this experience you described as a CEO is uh, is being experienced by countless number of our listeners yeah uh, whether they're ceos themselves or they're just in in companies that are struggling but also have so much potential and so much value to add yeah. i'm i'm curious as as we look at this uh if you can help me understand your company just a little bit more one when, yeah. when these rideshare companies first started it was the same thing with them and these and like airbnb and people's investors said People aren't going to trust getting into the yes. car with a stranger. And we've seen that We actually a lot of people have. However, we've taken a, a sharp turn over the last couple of years as we've seen uh, incidences that have told us maybe there actually is a little bit more risk here right. than we perceive. And in doing so, we need to be more thoughtful about how we ensure we can have feel that safety and security and therefore trust is that, am I getting at the... That is exactly right. right. I mean, I think, okay. so here's
1: one of the things I experienced working with big companies. So uh, Airbnb, and then now I'm in the rideshare uh, world or supporting rideshare companies. You would meet, and I, you know, look, the, the their leaders and CEOs are visionaries. So I don't, you know, it's a friend of mine who's in the, who does security for one of the rideshare companies said... Uh, You know, people like you and me, meaning him, meaning him, he was in security and me. He said, people like you and me, uh, you know, we don't, we tend not to build both multi-billion dollar companies because we're so worried about, you know, all the safety and security concerns. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but he, but, but I would meet with them and I would say there, there were two things that would factor into the, 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 sort of technology world or the, you know, the, the, the sharing economy. So the first was much like Facebook does is they would say, well, we're just a platform, right? So they would say, we're just, I was like, no, you're a platform where women are showing up at a house with three men mm-hmm. and a bed, right? You know, like, it's like, you come on, like, don't, don't, you know, there's responsibility. And, uh, there's there a responsibility. Exactly. So it's not unlike what we see with Facebook. Like you can, you can, you can't hide behind, what the platform is doing in terms of malfeasance or criminal behavior or whatever else. The other, which I thought was so interesting, was a little bit, we started with this, of a little bit of an infantilizing, infantilizing attitude about their customers, mm. which is their customers didn't wanna hear it, right? In other words, and I was like, that seems not right to me. So for example, one of the uh, sharing economy companies that I've advised in the past, um, used to do background checks and uh, of of, uh, of, uh, uh, of 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 people who were sort of you know members of their community, and um, and I said that's fantastic. You know why why don't you advertise that so that people know that that the company has done something? It's like, oh, it will scare it will scare people. I was like, no one's scared of a background check. Like, what are you talking? So it's just this weird attitude towards safety and security. And one of the things that I'm that that I hope in the future is in, is um, that in the same way that we talk about uh, you know having, um, say, you know, climate change or you know environmental people on corporate boards or you know, people who are thinking about sustainability on corporate boards, we really need to to, to get safety and security. Uh, people, people who think about trust and risk redu- reduction to the big kids table. I, what I found in San Francisco, what I found with a lot of the technology companies, especially the big ones, is that they would have a fancy, you know, uh, trust group, you know, that, of uh, former cabinet officials, and that those people would... Um, would, uh, uh, you know, they'd be at the, what I call the little kids table because the real work, the board work was getting done elsewhere. So one thing I'd love to see in the future is begin to bring the, 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 the trust people to the big kids table the the board of directors rather than your 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 specialized safety and security advisory group you're smiling because you've heard about all of these right oh, we absolutely. have our we have our trust advisory group you know of a fancy former secretary of defense like okay whatever you know
0: <laughs> yeah and, and to that point there's there's this notion of a, a veil of trust in which uh, i think trust has been really uh, the the word has been abused yeah, uh, by these companies that you're describing, and and I think we're all guilty of it uh, in our personal and professional lives of saying of thinking of trust as kind of just trust me. So we don't yeah. tell people you know that they did we did background checks on these members of the community because we're just expecting that our clients are trusting us right. and just simply trusting without any proof or evidence of what what are they trusting what what is the the proof and that honesty uh, to your point. Uh, of recognizing there's a real risk here. You're getting in the car with a stranger and we're going to do everything we can to make you safe rather than just trust us. We got it handled because that doesn't always work out. And that's really the reason your company exists to what you're, what I'm hearing because it doesn't work out. Right. Right? It doesn't work out. And also here's the
1: interesting thing Uh, for us. uh, And we're, um, uh, uh, you know, one of the things is not simply trust for a passenger or someone who's, at an Airbnb or something, you know, for the, it's also trust for the person putting their services out there. So it's the renter, it's the, or the, whatever they're called, the host at Airbnb yes. or the driver at Uber. None of these people are employees. So they're not getting workers comp They're They're putting themselves out there. And so you have an obligation to them, the driver or the host, that the experience will be good as well. Uh, and that's the only way these places will survive because if, a, if, if my, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a Airbnb host for a variety of reasons, but I think as my husband would not like it, but you know, I have girlfriends who are, you know, Airbnb hosts now. Uh, and, um, and they really like the trust factors because they're, you know, they're, they're leaving their home, they you know, kids, they, they, the kids' bedrooms, their bedroom, I mean, all sorts of things. So if someone comes in, you want to know that the family coming in, will treat your home with trust, right? With, uh, you know, and and care. Uh, so. That,
0: that, that absolutely makes a lot of sense. And to me, it's something that as a as a consumer myself in this uh, sharing industry, something I think we should be demanding yeah. of, of these companies. Uh, so take, taking a kind of spin back into this, the, the crisis world to yes. which uh, you, you were born and raised... Uh, you were at the front and center of not just uh, of a quite a variety of yeah. uh, different uh, different crises. One of which that I think's often kind of lost in history was the 2010 Deepwater Horizon yeah. oil spill, which well, was the largest our, marine yes. oil spill.
1: <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, it's hilarious. You say that. I love that. I literally, you couldn't, have. you couldn't have, that is like the best compliment I've ever gotten. A disaster forgotten is a successful disaster response, right? (laughs) In other words, the, that, that, and, um, and it was, it's hell when it's happening and everyone's yelling at each other and whatever, but basically we closed the well, cleaned the ocean, got the fishing moving again, got oil rigs, uh, pumping again. Um, and it was hell for a 100 days, but we did it. Uh, and, um, and I, I just I'm like giddy that you that you said it's forgotten. That is true, right? When you think about President Obama, you do not think of the president of the BP oil spill,
0: you don't think, think of the world's largest oil marine yeah. oil spill. In and history. You
1: d- <laughs> right. And you don't think about but when you think about Bush, you mm-hmm. think about Katrina, Yep. Right, so it's just a really, uh, um, it's, it's just very interesting. It's uh, so uh, uh, I was brought in uh, to really help manage the politics mm. of of a, a response. Every disaster has politics. I'm used to it. I, even the yelling that's going on during COVID, I'm 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 used to. I I I, I wish that the president didn't you know, didn't divide. I don't mind presidents. Presidents will often divide along partisan lines, but he's dividing along scientific lines, which is not good because it's obviously been very harmful uh, in terms of our response and our death toll. Um, I'm used to politics and disaster response. I mean, the politics that are going on now, it doesn't surprise me. I wish the president uh, would use other things besides science as a litmus test for loyalty. So masks have become sort of a loyalty factor for, you know, whether a governor wears one or doesn't or whether his supporters wear them or don't. Or they're they're having holiday parties now at the White House that aren't masked. I mean, it's crazy. These are these are death events. Right. And they're super spreader events are going to kill other people, not necessarily the ones in the room, uh, but you know, the BP oil spill was interesting because it was five, it was impacting five governors, all of them Republican mm. and all of the states that have been impacted by hurricane Katrina. So they, 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 each of the governors came to the crisis with a narrative in their head about hurricane Katrina. Right. What, what I always, narrative? that narrative was that the federal government was crappy, uh, that it didn't care about the states that. Uh, the federal government hates the South. Uh, the end. The most important thing that that uh, each state that the other state got more from the federal government than they did. So mm-hmm. there was a competition, right? In the same way that you're seeing now, the competition. They so they didn't trust
0: was, you, and they didn't trust each other. Is what exactly,
1: it. and so and so you try to manage that. And how do we manage it? Is is uh, the most extensive uh, crisis communications effort that we could, internal effort that we could uh, uh, engineer. So every morning we started a governor's call every morning for over a hundred plus days uh, that just communicated to each of the governors like where we were, uh, where we were going, numbers and hope, as I said, Mm -hmm. right? You know, just basically uh, we deployed uh, Coast Guard assets to various locales uh, throughout each jurisdiction. Uh, that um, uh, that uh, that were uh, basically uh, allowed for every mayor, every parish president, every county commissioner to have their own coast guard leader with them so that when communities had questions, when they were wondering what was going on because remember the community's devastated, they can't fish, they can't. Uh, They can't work in the oil refineries. I mean, the whole place is just devastated. Uh, uh, And so we just we did we we just believe that uh, that people could handle the truth and that that was really, really important. And I think uh, we did other things, obviously, operationally and stuff. uh, But it's 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 you know, it's how to think about as a leader, your obligation to those who um, are not are, we're not born to be against you. I mean in other words mm. you you lose their confidence. And particularly in a crisis when the natural sentiment is actually for people to work together, but you can lose that quickly as we've seen in the United States.
0: Right. People want success.
1: Right. Right. I mean look at uh uh prime uh uh, uh, uh uh Angela Merkel in in Germany, the president, uh, her speech yesterday. Uh, they had about, I think, 400 dead in a single day, and she just spoke honestly to the public that they could hate her, they could, but they they needed to fight the virus, and mm. it was globally received as one of the best speeches and honest reflection about her own mistakes, honest uh, uh, request of the public and what they needed to do.
0: I th- it it's. To me, it's uh, what a lot of people are kind of sit back and say, she's talking to me. right?" Yeah. Even, even though I'm not a German citizen, she's talking to me because she represents this central power that's uh, yes. responsible for millions of people's lives.
1: Yes, and, and to say, uh, I underestimated it or I, I opened up too early. And that's one of the problems, I think, with the way uh, I mean, the way obviously pop culture is, the way media culture is, but also the way our politics are is, is everything is a loyalty test, right? Rather than, okay, there's a common good here. And that's, that's a challenge all the time. That's a particular challenge in a pandemic when every individual's response impacts every other individual's, right? I mean, this is, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, it. You, know, you hear what people did at Thanksgiving and you're like, that, you know, it, I don't mind people going to Thanksgiving or Christmas with their families. I mind them leaving. In other Thank words, you. if you want to go see your family, stay there until we know, until we have better testing, until we, um, <clears throat> we're not on this trajectory where every state is going up. So. And this is interesting for CEOs that are listening business people And this, you know, if 2021 is what I call the rolling recovery, right, that the vaccine is going to come, it's going to roll by based on different distributions and allocations. Throughout the United States, you know, maybe things look better. May, June, July, uh, uh, we'll get to herd immunity sometime this summer. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty bullish on the vaccines also because other vaccines are coming down the pipe. We're really, I'm really excited about those and more, more traditional vaccines, single shot, don't need cold storage. So we're going to have a variety of options out there. We are going to roll, you know, we're going to roll through this recovery. But so, but. For employers, one of the big issues is, is going to be, uh, verification. I mean, what are you going to demand of your employees of proof that they took the vaccine when we live in a nation that has about 30% vaccine hesitancy? And I think this is going to be a brand new way for the business community is, 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 ha- uh, you know, for the private sector, uh, you could just make it a term, to some employment. But what if, um what if you don't come back to work right what if one of the legacies of the pandemic is you decide to be virtual right are you still going to demand it of employees who say why should i have to take it it's going to be i say interesting in the sense that i'm pretty confident that a lot of the vaccine hesitancy goes away over time that the more people who get it the more people will want it uh so i and and we just have to communicate that but it's there's a whole new world of of business employee relations in a in a vaccine world about verification uh, 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 and, and and vaccine hesitancy uh, that I think we're just getting our heads around now.
0: That's that's, that's fascinating. You bring this up. There's, a, a, as you probably know, there's research that's come out from Mass Inc. Yes. In December 2020 showing that people who are more willing uh, to take the vaccine are the same people who often are the ones who are saying, yes, I'll take it as long as I know other people have taken it. Right. And so how do you, how do you start that and spark that initial sense of trust for this brand new thing that people know has been rushed through production? How do people look at it and say, yes, put this into my body is it simply just ensure three of their friends have taken it? Yes, the influencers.
1: I mean, it's the influencers and all of us can be an influencer. So uh, mm-hmm. so the, the the you know, as as uh, some of your older listeners may know, uh, maybe I have to describe who he is. There's a guy and there's no, I'm joking, but everyone knows who Elvis Presley was. But he uh, was a young he was a teenager when he went on the Ed Sullivan show, but it was the heartthrob of the nation uh, and they were having problems with pol- polio vaccine compliance. Uh, it was at about 1%. And you imagine, imagine polio was wiping out children, right? I mean, in other words, it was either killing them or, or making them uh, uh, live their lives with a disability. Uh, and he, before he went on the Ed Sullivan show where he famously, you know, wiggled his hips and that was a big deal then, <laughs> he... Uh, uh, they asked him to do a uh, uh, public service announcement where he would get the shot live with the picture uh, and compliance within six months went to 80 percent. So that's you know, but that's you know, at a time when we only had three TV stations and and one recording studio and Elvis Presley. Like we're going to need lots of influencers from the LeBron James to the Beyonce's to the Dolly Parton's. To the Fox News hosts, right? I mean, in other words, if we have huge proportions of hosts of a, of the of the American public that watches Fox News has a certain amount of skepticism about science. God, I would love for Laura Ingraham to get the vaccine on air, um, and so it's so that would be ideal from my perspective. Um, is you get just a whole bunch of different influencers, and this is where the business community comes into play, you know, there's a, there, as you know, there's a libertarian sentiment within the tech world and the startup world, it's, it's, um, I don't love it. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's like Elon Musk doubting COVID, you know, he was a, one of the greatest doubters. And one of my, you know, I love going back to his early tweets, like everyone's overreacting. And then of course he gets it. Uh, so, uh, and that libertarian bent, you know, it's also a little bit like I'm the smartest guy in the room, to be honest. Like, you know, I i, I studied, you know, I studied uh, infectious diseases online, you know, in, <laughs> from my, you know. So um, that libertarian bent has got to be completely suppressed. So I beg all libertarians who are listening, or that you I mean we have to think more communitarian, and your responsibility is to get that shot too, uh, because people will be following you, as we've seen. We've seen uh, in terms of uh, conduct of uh, of uh, Elon Musk Musk's employees or other employees that 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 we have to move um uh, together
0: mm, really going back to that it's that le- the leaders are responsible yes yeah. themselves and the decisions they make but what they do influences
1: and others. how they talk and how they're so that so right so that you know think about your company they see you uh you're one of their three right and then yeah. and then also you you know you should give a day off for vaccination, right? So the people aren't penalized. We, we—it's like voting. We have to incentivize people in all sorts of ways so that they can, uh, you know, you, you need to tell your employees for for people with bigger businesses, like you need to tell your employees they get a day off. You know, that they they can get sick leave for vaccination. Uh, uh, you know, if there's any uh, a response to the vaccine. I mean, we got to make this easier because we have to get to herd immunity so that you and I and everyone can be normal ish, as I say. <laughs> Not normal anymore, normal ish.
0: Normal Well, I, I'm curious, as, as we're seeing this, uh, President Trump is touting that the vaccine is coming out. Yeah. It's, uh, and, you know, as you said, he's kind of in some ways doing a victory lap. He's, he's maybe not taking full advantage of the yeah. hey, you know we're here we did this right how do we there, there's many people who fear that uh just like mass had become a political statement as you yeah. described that getting a vaccine will become a political statement right now it's not right now the president's right. saying i did it we got a vaccine this right. is good but, how, but it seems like we're that seems kind of like a logical next step is to kind of have that completely
1: I, That's what I'm worried about. I mean, I, I have to tell you, we need to keep Trump and his family on the vaccine bandwagon. I, I want Ivanka to be on air with Laura Ingraham. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, uh, who's that singer that they, and Scott Baio, uh, and I want the three of them to get vaccinated because they have tremendous influence in at least 20% of the population. And, uh, and we need them to get vaccinated because they are influencers in their space. Now, you know, other people are influencers too, but we, we, you cannot let the Trump, you know, the people are willing to walk over the cliff with him right now. You cannot let them uh, be vaccine skeptics because there's too many of them.
0: Right. And essentially allowing the vaccine to be a celebration of uh, of the Trump's presidency. Yes. Yeah. And the fact that he said to many people's you know, uh, skeptical, skeptical perspectives that we'd have vaccine by the end of 2020. And we looks did. like it looks like we did, and that that should be something that uh, that absolutely everyone celebrates, yeah. whether yeah. whichever side of the aisle. Absolutely. Now, speaking of this, uh, this kind of n- people who aren't taking the vaccines, and yeah. uh, let's just assume, let's say that it's not a political divide, uh, but there is, uh, and that the Republicans and Democrats and even Libertarians are going to take the vaccine. Uh, there's still a just a portion of society. That uh, is known as the anti vaxxers. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, maybe they're the pro truthers or they probably have some other way that they like to refer to themselves. Um, yeah. But uh, during the measles outbreak of 2019, you had said that anti vaxxers, <clears throat> and I quote, should be arrested, fined, and isolated. Yes. You've compared it to sending a kid to school with a loaded gun and said that we should have people who are anti vaxxers who aren't taking vaccines on a list similar to sex offenders. Yeah. And you've uh part of this you've blamed on the lack of trust in vaccines on what you describe as voodoo science and mm-hmm. even promoted by Russian Russia. disinformation. Is that do you still hold that opinion? I think <laughs> many of our listeners will think that's wow, like you know, loaded so gun. I, want them, I know,
1: absolutely. So I want people to think about vaccine compliance uh as a series of carrots and sticks so on your sticks right so someone like me who's trying to get to herd immunity i think in bulk right that's what logistics are i think about large systems of distribution and i you know i'm I'm willing to be over and under inclusive i just got to get to a number right so the the medical profession does not agree with me on that they are much more into you know explaining to people and stuff like that but i think everyone would agree so there's a couple of responses to that. so one is outside of covid this was that was written pre-covid mm-hmm. i have no doubt that anti-vaxxers love their children and i they can have no doubt that i love mine what i do know is i love their children more than they love mine you see mm-hmm. what i'm saying in other words I am willing to, let's even assume that there's a risk, which most people view as being so de minimis that, that, uh, uh not, not worth worrying about. I'm willing to have my child vaccinated so that their children can do all the things that their children get to do that children a hundred years ago or in countries not as rich as ours, aren't able to do uh, without fear. Right. In other words, fear of polio, fear of other diseases. But what's it to you?
0: Right. It's their, it's their kids. It's their family. They don't get shots. What does it matter to you or me?
1: The people who do get shots?
0: Right. Because they're free riders. Because if I, because if I
1: agree with them, Right. In other words, if everyone if, if you if there are no consequences to being a free rider, why would you not be a in other words, if you have too many free riders, we then don't have herd immunity. So it's a totally it's a totally rational uh, uh, a scientific assessment of why you have to keep more people in the vaccination tent than less. Plus, their kids get sick. Right? That's a burden on the health community. Plus, lots of people can't get vaccinations for faults that are not their own. They either have allergic reactions or they have pre-existing conditions, or as my girlfriend has told you, her kid has cancer. She cannot get have her kid, so they can only be around kids that have vaccines. So, so I so there are all there are legitimate medical reasons to not get vaccinated. Uh, but science is not one of them, right? In other words, the, the, and so, yeah, I can get, I sound, someone said about my book, cause I had a similar thing. It was the only time I sounded harsh, but part of that is because I, um, I believe in carrots and sticks. So uh, someone else is doing the carrots, right? The medical community is trying to get people to take vaccines, explain to them. But at some stage, it is reckless endangerment it really is uh, and so think about covid i am so there's a couple that just got arrested arrested uh, for reckless endangerment because they knew they had covid they got on a plane right so at some stage wow. you have to ask yourself wait don't we have a responsibility to each other to not be to not be careless with other people's children uh, and I believe in that and it can sound harsh, but you know, that's, that's because I live in the, whoops, I live in the world as sort of bulk. Right. But it's not, it's actually not harsh. I mean, it's actually, uh, I mean, it's, it, in some ways it's a, it's a, it's a responsibility we have to each other. Uh, uh, and, and maybe cause I've traveled the world and I know you have, you know, other countries, I mean, they would, they, you know. That our children, mostly, except for because of gun violence, mostly uh, are safe from diseases uh, is because we have a strong public health system and are pro vaccine. That's what Right,
0: and we and we take this. I think as you're describing this macro view. Yeah. Right. It's not the individual person. It's interesting. What you're describing reminds me of. Uh, uh, someone I know who worked on the initial drunk driving campaigns mm-hmm. and it absolutely admittedly I wasn't around when drunk driving was uh, was not this huge taboo but uh, it's it fascinated me to hear their story of how people saw that uh, driving drunk, was more of a personal choice and yes there was some risk of impact minimal risk to others but it was mostly if i'm going to drive drunk then i'm saying well you know i crash i die uh it's it's fascinating how that now fast forward today how drunk driving is such a taboo it's nothing that you would brag about it's and it's and it's and nobody cares if you die at drunk driving they care about all of the people you're putting at risk
1: Exactly. Exactly. That is uh, uh, right. It's, it's, and it's always those stories where the family of five gets killed, but the drunk driver doesn't. Right. And you're like, OK. You know, so I, I agree with that. I, and I, um, you know, look, with vaccines, I hope the carrots can take us far. But there comes a moment when a society can say an individual's actions are so careless uh, so not communitarian that the that the state will step in. I mean, here's a an, here's another example. I'm a big fan. I live in New England, so every year some jerk and you know some a bunch of jerks, sorry, you know, <laughs> decide to ignore signs that say do not hike here. You know, snow, whatever they inevitably get stuck in somewhere in Vermont, say, or the, you know, the, the White Mountains, they inevitably get stuck. And then you have to deploy three dozen first responders to save them. So Vermont passed a new law that not only has, a, I think it has a criminal aspect to it, a criminal sanction to it, but that you have to pay for putting the first responders at risk. So yeah, whatever their time or whatever is, I think that's awesome. Right. I mean, just don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk.
0: Yeah, and when you and when you are selfish and you put others at risk yeah. trying to help you, trying to save you, and you put that burden on the community, uh, you're saying there there's reason that they should be arrested, fined, and isolated.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Now, as we as we dive deeper into this trust as, trust aspect of this, uh, you've mentioned uh, previously that there's been seeds of doubt in mm-hmm. vaccines overall uh specifically coming from Russia and then yeah. maybe watered by and taken taken created a new life within different uh these uh fringe movements within the United States. Yeah. Is there is there evidence for this? Is rush does Russia yes. really care? about us and our vaccines. Yeah, so there's two types of
1: disinformation and disruption going on in the cyber world. So we're worried about security on the physical security side. We're also worried about it on the cybersecurity side, right? So because the physical is protect the vaccines, protect the boxes, protect the logistical flow. On the cyber side, we're worried about two things. One is disruption. I'll start with that, which is we are starting to see um, industrial, essentially industrial sabotage companies are trying to get secrets from other companies. Uh, we've learned of disruptions, uh, from, uh, from country, uh, country to country or company to company, uh, where people are trying to figure out about the supply chain and logistics. So that's the first thing. The, uh, the other though is disinformation. Russia doesn't care if we get herd immunity. And in fact, Russia gains from us looking as incompetent as we do right now. And we'll gain even more if we look even more incompetent. Um, So they are very much into driving the disinformation about the the healthiness of the vaccine, about the safety of the vaccine and all sorts of things like that.
0: And so as they do this, this goes to something that I know you talk a lot about with mm-hmm. your uh, followers on Twitter, which is this idea of the preparedness paradox. Yes. And so, what? How does how does that come to play? Especially when we look at the misinformation that's being yeah. communicated, and the the panic, and some saying that, oh, you, we're over panicking, and some saying we're not panicking enough. We're not really yeah. ta- addressing this as as real as it is. How does that I, come to play?
1: I, I, so, so the preparedness paradox is a way of describing. Uh, what often happens in uh, successful stories. So, uh, uh, which is, uh, so as a disaster manager, you see a threat or you anticipate a threat. Uh, You prepare for that threat. The threat either therefore doesn't come or its impact is less. And then everyone around you says, what were you so worried about? Nothing bad happened, right? And you're like, oh my God, I spent years trying to build the system. Right. So it's to ensure that
0: something horrible didn't come. So it's
1: like, I'm sure like every chief information security officer that's listening to this is like, you just described my life, right? Like, you know, every day they've built a system that is being, that is protecting the company from disruption of services attacks to, to, uh, you know, bringing the system down to single points of failure. And so every day, Nothing bad happens. And so then the next time that they justify their budget, they're like, well, why do you need this much money? There's no threat. And you're like, oh, that's the paradox. That's the preparedness paradox. So it happens in the private sector as well, where it's very hard to justify security budgets uh, if you're good at your job because people think that therefore you're really not doing anything rather than you're prepared for it. So this is true uh, with covid, right? I mean, in other words, or our lack of preparedness. Uh, but you know, one of the reasons why people like me were yelling in January and February was if we could get if we could stop community spread, right? Then you would have a very different covid response than what we're seeing now today, which is a, you know, distributed distributed pandemic. So that's sort of what um, what the preparedness paradox is. And people, I think, who have startups and people who are in the safety and security space, we live that every day, right? It was Y2K for those old enough to remember, right? No, everyone was overreacting about Y2K. Really? No, everyone reacted to this inevitable thing and so changed their system so that the whole system didn't crash
0: absolutely and that's the you know when people look back on it it's that sense of wow this was total overreaction nothing no bad happened right and in reality bad could have been it could have been really really bad if people yeah. didn't take it seriously and address yeah. it up right. front and so you 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 advise CEOs you invite advise, mm-hmm. advise governments you are yourself a CEO uh, but you're also a parent yeah and my my understanding is uh that as you've you've really applied a lot of your uh, time in advising CEOs, governments, uh, and officials, and take that and applying it to parents, and you've done yeah. that in your book, Security Mom: An Unclassified Guide to Protecting Our Homeland and Your Home. Uh, what do you think in that in that book, and that people can really get as a parent mm-hmm. as they're yeah. looking at the world's kind of. Feels like it's
1: falling apart. Around I know, us. I know. Um, so basically, here's my story. This is my story, which is, uh, so you've heard of the term helicopter mom? You know, mm-hmm. mom said hover or dad, but you know, and we're probably we Uh, So my kids, my kids and husband would tell you uh, I could never have been accused of being a helicopter mom. I was more of a satellite. I was a satellite mom. I was very well, I think if you're in one, if you're a working mother with an intense job, you just have to learn to delegate. You have to learn to be comfortable with your kids um, uh, having independence and you sort of force it upon them and they're great. And, um, and, and, um, and with less neuroses than most of the (laughs) other kids in their peer group. Uh, and so, but what i like to say is the helicopter mom and the satellite mom will both meet each other in the emergency room when their kids need stitches. Right. I mean, in other words, whatever you do, something bad is going to happen. And so what I, what I want people to think about in terms of how they structure their family lives and their communities, and this is true with COVID, but it's true with violence and drugs and terrorism and oil and hurricanes and oil spills or whatever else is, is, you know, the obligation of parents is to reduce the risk to your child, but it it cannot be to eliminate risk. This is, it's, it's to build a Trusted network, so to speak, around you and your family and your children, uh, but it cannot be that uh, that you're going to eliminate risk. It's really, you know, and I and and you know, you're not in this world yet. But let me tell you, there's a lot of mothers, you know, of of certain means uh, who create crises because I don't know, maybe they just want to have. There's enough stuff in the world. They don't you don't need to create more crises or more fear or more worry. Uh, my husband said to me once it's probably the best way to describe me as a he said this as a working mother but it was also true in terms of my own work and it helps to, it helps as a CEO to have this attribute, he said, you did not, you were lucky you never got the stew gene, S-T-E-W, in other words, mm. uh, I don't stew. Uh, you know, you make a decision about your kids, it's maybe right, it's maybe wrong, they'll adapt, whatever. Uh, and um, and that's true in business too, that you, you, you know, and it's actually true in disaster response. I mean, think about Responses to COVID. What's the what's the clearly wrong answer? Is the late one, mm-hmm. right? It's the over deliberated one, right? The, the, the early the early response. All you may you may uh, you may be over prepared, but uh, the the delayed response, the stewed over response, is the one that is going to get you into trouble. So that's I, I. So I see a lot of comparisons uh, uh, between the home and the homeland. Risk reduction, building trust uh uh and and not suing too much mm. and
0: you know you as with your background you could easily have been a uh, uh, not a satellite mom you could have been a helicopter mom hovering yeah. and trying to in-
1: reduce no risk you, you can't say, be you in have my no world idea like,
0: how much no, there no, is out there no i mean, no i don't think you would i don't think
1: you would go into my field if you were like that, because it's just, it's just gave I me mean, because you you sort of accept things happening, you see bad things happening. I mean, when I think about the vaccine delivery and the logistics, you know, my basic sentiment to most reporters who call me and ask about it is bad things will happen. I mean, in the sense, like, it's going to be over and under inclusive, it's going to seem unfair, there's gonna be no dearth of stories about a truck broken about, you know, a vaccine batch not being adequate, like, trust me, it's a huge effort. Uh, but you know, you kind of have to roll with it as well.
0: Mm, it's, it's like a CEO. Of, exactly. Yeah. And to, to touch on another uh, touchy subject right now, uh, the with the election, right, this yeah. is something that There's, I I think no matter which side of the aisle you're on, you can say it didn't go perfectly. There is some, maybe some little mishaps and some little blips and news stories. I think one thing that's interesting is whenever it's talked about, uh, people are talking about is there widespread, was there widespread fraud, right? Recognizing, yes, there might be little incidents here and there. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, how do you see that playing into this public sentiment of fear, that that is currently, really seems like it's, yeah. it's boiling. I,
1: yeah, I'm very nervous. I mean, I wasn't at first. I was probably in the camp that was like, this is such a joke. These guys are such jokes. Look, there's, you know, you don't have to take my word for it, you take most Republican secretaries of state's words for it. That in those states uh they they said that the election went fine, that there wasn't fraud. And um, but you know, five weeks into it, it's gonna take its toll. And it's gonna take its toll on Biden's ability to govern because uh because if too much of the population thinks that he's not a legitimate president will be harder for him to govern. But I'm seeing some of the data now and it seems like most of the American public views this as bogus. He's just a bad winner. What I, a bad loser. What I can't believe is the Ted Cruz's of the world mm-hmm. and the, and the people like that who, who do know better and have no interest in, in, in doing better. And they don't, and it's easy for them because there's no consequences. You can be, you know, you're not going to win, right? So you might as well just be as crazy as imaginable, but you actually are having an impact.
0: And so as we go, one of our final questions I want to ask you is in, uh, in this time, what do you see as uh, that importance of trust? What do you want people to understand mm. as we go into this next, uh, this next new normal?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, we are, I mean, our lives will be different that we are going to be, uh, I mean, you know, both as we get to herd immunity, but also even after about how we relate to each other. I think there's going to be wonderful post pandemic aspects, the roaring twenties, we'll spend money. We're going to have more fun. We're going to appreciate each other more. We're going to, you know, maybe appreciate the world more, appreciate, uh, intimacy more, uh, uh, um, but, um, but you know, things will also be different, right? And then in terms of mask wearing, in terms of uh, uh, um, how we react to each other, how we interact. And I think, uh, I hope we come out of this with a greater appreciation for others' goodwill. And I, I hope that that's true. But when you think of the people who have sacrificed and the Transportation workers and the people who are getting food to your supermarket or restaurant, uh, even though you shouldn't be eating inside a restaurant and the doctors and nurses and every and the truck drivers who are going to move things across the country to get you inoculated. I just I hope we have a greater appreciation for the people who uh you know, who make things run in this country. We tend to think we make things run. I don't, I what we do is important, but uh, what they do is uh, irreplaceable.
0: Such such brilliant words and such a great reminder as we remember how how, what really makes the world run and how uh, everyone needs to be working together to support that. Uh, I I really appreciate your, your words on the importance of honesty about the risk and how we need to ensure that people also understand the hope and can face the reality of the situation and invest in that long-term trust. Yeah. And so as uh, as our audience goes away, I'd love uh, for our audience, please share uh, anything that you've heard that has really resonated with you, that's helped you grow uh, as part of this discussion. Uh, tweet at us. Uh, mm-hmm. If you'd like to hear more uh, of Professor Juliet Kayyem's perspective, Uh, Go out, get her book, Security Mom, An Unclassified Guide to Protecting Our Homeland and Your Home, as well as her new book that just published through MIT Press, Beyond 9-11. Also, don't forget to follow her on Twitter at Juliet Kayyem. Juliet, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure uh, to be here. And thank you for all you do. Uh, Do people know your day job is one to also uh, build trust and reduce risk? So thanks so much.
0: That's exactly. Well, I I really appreciate it. And again, to everyone out there, please join us next time. Stay, Stay safe. Thank you for joining us on The Trust Revolution.